Let me just pray once more. Lord Jesus, this Christmas we invite you to step out of the stable and into our midst. You are the Word who is with God and who is God. At your voice, the galaxies were formed. At your voice, the dead are raised. At your command, all things will be made new. Bring light and life into our lives this Christmas, we pray. Amen. Amen. So this Advent in the evenings... We are looking at the songs from Luke chapter 1. And over the last two weeks, myself and Jack looked at the Magnificat, the Song of Mary. And over the next session, this one and next week, we're going to look at the Benedictus, or the Song of Zechariah. Now, these are songs of salvation. But they're not kind of bland, insipid sentimental worship songs. These are prophetic announcements of the coming of the Messiah. And tonight, we're going to look at the first half of this song, um, where Zechariah prophesies more generally, and then next week we're going to look at what Zechariah has to say specifically about the birth of his son. So tonight, the first half, we're going to look at three things. What was the Messiah going to do? Who was the Messiah going to be? And what will this mean for us? So firstly, what is the Messiah going to do? Now it tells us that Zechariah was prophesying. And so he put in the past tense something that has yet to happen. He said the Lord... Oh, sorry, in the present tense, the Lord has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation in verse 69. In other words, Zechariah knew that all of those promises of God that had been made for thousands of years were about to be fulfilled. Now, before the section that we read tonight, an angel appeared to Zechariah and told him what was going to happen. And he hadn't believed him. And the consequence of that was Zechariah lost his voice. And he couldn't talk for nine months. Wow. That would be quite, that would be quite hard work, wouldn't it? Now, as Zechariah believed, he found his voice again. And was able to glorify God. To speak of important matters without faith is to waste our breath. Yeah? To speak of important matters without faith is to waste our breath. It's only when we believe, when we believe God and his word, that we have something useful to say to others. So let's have a look at what Zechariah sang. 
He sang about redeeming. And redeeming means to release or rescue something. He sung about a horn. And a horn in the Bible represents strength, power, rule. So God had given power to rescue and save. And Zechariah twice sung of God rescuing his people from his enemies. What did that mean? If you thought of Israel's enemies as Rome, then it's kind of obvious what it means. You need a fair bit of strength to, to kick out the Roman army. But our real enemy isn't any human army or any individual person. Our real enemy is sin. And behind sin, evil. And flowing from sin, death. Those are our real enemies. What does it mean to need a horn of salvation, to need strength, to need rule, to redeem us from sin, evil, and death? And of course, the Bible tells us an epic story that explains that to us. And the epic biblical picture that explains that is the story of the Exodus. So, let's just think for a moment about the Hebrews in slavery in Egypt. They were held captive, they were exploited, and they were um, oppressed by the might of Pharaoh's Egypt. Now that's a problem because that was the people that were called to be God's holy people. A royal priesthood, a nation representing God to people and people to God. They were the people who had been promised a land. But even if they wanted to be that people, they couldn't fulfil that vocation as slaves in Egypt. And there was nothing at all that they could do about that. They were completely stuck. They needed to be redeemed and rescued from slavery. And if that was going to happen, they were going to need a deliverer form of salvation. So here are the guys, they're slaves in Egypt, they are ruled over by the superpower of the world. There is none in human terms in that day greater than Pharaoh. And so to liberate the Hebrews, God was going to have to overthrow the power of Pharaoh. And that's what the plagues are all about. It's not comfortable reading the plagues, is it? We don't, we don't like judgment. We don't like talking about judgment. And for good reason. But if salvation is a coin, then one side of the coin is salvation. The other side of the coin is judgment. The act of power by which, Pharaoh over, by which God overthrew the oppressor Pharaoh in judgment was the same act of power that liberated the Hebrew slaves. God acted in judgment to overthrow the powers that enslave us in order to liberate us. There can be no salvation without judgment. Because sin is not just something that we do that makes us guilty before God. Sin is a power 
that takes us captive and destroys us. And so, if we want to be saved and rescued and redeemed, we don't just need to be forgiven for our sins, although heaven knows we do need to be forgiven for our sins, and there are no shortage of sins that need forgiving. But we also need to be delivered, rescued, redeemed from sin's power which dominates us and destroys us. And so God must judge sin in order to save us from sin. And so Zechariah was singing that through the birth of John and ultimately Jesus, God's long promises were going to be fulfilled. Jesus was going to be the horn of strength to redeem his people. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. So the Messiah was going to act in power to redeem his people from sin and death, just as all those centuries before he had redeemed the Hebrew slaves from the Egyptians. So that's the first point. What was the Messiah going to do? Second point, who is the Messiah? Zechariah sings two things, that if we know our Old Testament will locate us on the biblical map. And I think it's going to be a little bit easier to explain if we look at them in reverse order. So first, we have a little down at 72 and 73. Zechariah sings this. To remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father, Abraham. Abraham. So here... We're talking about that foundational promise back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. From that promise that God made to Abraham flows the whole story of Israel in the Old Testament. What was the promise? That God promised to bless Abraham and make him into a great nation. And through a descendant of his... He would rescue the whole world from sin and evil and death and restore it to his blessing. Zechariah is saying, that's Jesus. Jesus is going to be that promised descendant who brings salvation to the whole world. Another really key phrase is in verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. David, David. So look at the promise to Abraham. The promise to David is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this is one of the most central promises in the Bible of a Messiah. And God promised David that he was going to have a son who would be a son of God. And that son of God was going to establish and rule an eternal kingdom. And that son of God was going to build a house for God's name. And all the later prophecies of the Messiah throughout the prophets build on that central promise. Jesus was going to be that son of God, that son of David. And so Zechariah looks 
And he sees what's happening through John and Jesus. And he sees that it lies right on the centre line of God's purposes right throughout the scriptures. The promise of salvation through a descendant of Abraham worked out through a Messiah descended from David that was going to be fulfilled through Jesus the Christ. That's who Jesus is, the son of Abraham, the son of David and the son of God. But there's something else. Did you notice it in verse 68? Have a look at verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. This verse, in common with many of the other Old Testament prophecies, strongly suggests that in the birth of Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, we have the Lord himself coming to redeem his people. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Zechariah saw it before it happened. He'd listened to all of those prophecies and he'd thought about them. And he'd met an angel and completely messed it up, but now it had become clear to him. This is it. This is it, the whole story of Israel, which is the story of the world, is coming together in what is happening right now. So the Messiah was coming with the power of salvation. The Messiah would be the son of Abraham and the son of David, who would actually be the Lord himself coming to redeem his people. Now all of this is theology, but you can't yet really call it good theology. Because it can only be called good theology if it creates godliness in us, yeah? You can have all the right answers in your head and it'll do you no good whatsoever unless it changes your life. Yeah? <coughs> Orthodoxy, which means believing the right things, is only useful if it leads to orthopractice, which means doing the right things. Because as we've been looking at in James, faith without works is deceptive and it's deed. Which brings us to our final and crucial question. What does this mean for us? And the answer is screaming at us in verses 74 and 75. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies. Let's read on together. And to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. There we are. The point of salvation is not to have a nice life. The point of salvation is not to choose the easy and the comfortable things, living in wealth and pleasure, and then, even better, getting to heaven when we die. It's about us serving God and his great purposes of salvation. If our life becomes all about us, our life becomes toxic because it's all about God. 
It's not all about us. And when our priorities wander away from God's priorities, we're in sin. And we need God to come and judge that sin in our life in order to rescue us from something that will drag us off towards death. Friends, selfishness is not in our self-interest. Our self-interest is a very good thing. God wants us to live an amazing life of love. Selfishness will ruin us. We need to be rescued. So our service of God should be three things. It should be without fear. It should be holy. And it should be righteous. Firstly, without fear. I've had to think about this. I think it's most reasonable to believe that fear here is fear of our enemies. Fear of sin, evil and death. I speak to quite a few people, particularly when I was a student worker, about death. And they say, oh, I'm not too worried about death. And that was my situation when I was growing up. I didn't really worry about death. But the reason that I didn't worry too much about death is that death hadn't come too close to me. It wasn't until my father died that I really actually started believing in death as a real problem. And suddenly... This thing that I wasn't afraid of, because it felt a long way and not very real, suddenly got right up in my face. And for the last nine years, I'm still working out, trying to learn from God how to deal with the concept of getting older and that heading in one direction. If our death isn't a real thing to us, then we're going to really struggle to see what's important in life. We'll invest in all sorts of things that we'll then have to say goodbye to and leave behind. On the other hand, it's easy to get dominated by the fear of death or to get dominated by the pressure and demands and expectations of the godless world around us. Jesus the Messiah has defeated sin and Jesus the Messiah has defeated death. And so, so long as we're aligning ourselves with him, then we have hope and we learn to trust him and we can be freed from domination of the fear of death. So our service of God should be fearless of sin and death. Secondly, our service of God should be holy. I don't know how that word holy sounds to you. I think often when the culture talks about holiness, it understands holiness to mean moral strictness. I think a much better, a much more helpful way to think of holiness is uncorrupted love. Uncorrupted love. Holy service isn't rigidly moral service. Holy service is undivided love. It's love for God, flowing out, of course, of his love for us. We love because he first loved us. And then that love flows from us out into our spiritual family, each other. We're family. We're called to love each other. And love by its very nature multiplies. And so that love that we share together as God's family is supposed to overflow from us and flow out to a lost and broken, dying world around us. The life we're called to is a life of love. Who do we love? Our families? Yes, most of them 
most of the time, hopefully. Uh, what about friends? Yeah, yeah, we love our friends. That's not too difficult. How is God expanding our love beyond our friends and family? Who else are we serving? Are we blessing? Are we caring about? Are we praying for? Are we helping? Do we serve at church out of love for God and love for our family? Or do we serve as a duty or an obligation? When we're at work, do we do our work as an expression of love for God or as a need to earn money? Anything we do that isn't sin can be done as an act of love for God and can be an opportunity to align ourselves with the heart of our Creator. Finally, our service of God should be in righteousness. In other words, it should be right and true. It should be motivated and shaped by love. And if that's going to happen, it's got to be purified of every sin and idolatry. Not just the obvious everyday sins that we're very aware of, but the more subtle sins. Doing things for ourselves. Doing things to burnish our own reputation. Doing things to win the praise of others. Or not doing things, perhaps, to win the praise of others. Doing things for our own good and gain. When the love of God gets right in the centre of our lives, because we're gazing at his love for us, then everything else will fall into place and we'll live lives free from fear and free from slavery and free from death. So the Messiah would have the power to save us. The Messiah would be the son of Abraham, the son of David, the Son of God, the Lord himself come to us. And the Messiah would enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness. Next week, next month, next year, for the rest of our lives.